China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies, and this week I'm joined by Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, both reporters at The Wall Street Journal. Today we'll be discussing their book, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, which is just out from St. Martin's Press. Josh and Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. We'll get into the book in a minute, but I thought if I could first ask Lisa and then Josh in that order, just a bio question of how did you both come to be reporters and reporters focusing on China? What was the what was the life life uh, life arc that got you to this position, Lisa? I'm Singaporean, and I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. Unfortunately, you know, Singapore is kind of a small place. And after four years of working here for Bloomberg News, I decided I really needed to go somewhere bigger where I could touch on more more stories. And it just happened that when I was considering a foreign posting, the term BRIC was very much in vogue. Everyone said you had to go to either you know Brazil or Russia, India or China. And for me, I just thought, being a Mandarin speaker and uh, ethnic Chinese myself, I thought it'd be interesting to go back and kind of rediscover my roots in China. So that's actually what eventually brought me to China in 2010. And Lisa, you were there from 2010 till till when? I was there from 2010 till late 2018. Okay. In between, I did a, a China break, like one year. Kind of everyone needs a China break <laughs> at a certain point. <laughs> Josh. Yeah, I actually got into journalism pretty much by accident because I was um, I'd gone home after college and was working as a substitute teacher and was fired for uh, swearing at the children and uh, needed another job. And there just happened to be a, a job at uh, my local newspaper where um, where swearing was allowed. And the work was just fascinating. I, I just loved it. I couldn't believe people got paid to to do that, to sort of talk to people and write stories. And I just instantly fell in love with it. And I sort of always wanted to go to China to work. I, I traveled there. I'm, I'm half Chinese. And I traveled there with my family when I was in my teens and just found it an endlessly fascinating place. Not at all what I had expected growing up. And that, dissonant, that sort of dissonance, that difference from what I was expecting to what um, and, and and what was actually occurring in China was just really intriguing so then you know after I worked in in my hometown paper for a little while there was an opportunity to work at a at China daily in Beijing to uh to be an apparatchik for a year it seemed like a great way to go to China and then uh, I sort of stuck around as a freelancer for for a while after that and then one thing led to another uh, ended up working for the Wall Street Journal during the Olympics and then basically've been covering China for them ever since. That's a good story to tell young people that you too can get a job at the Wall Street Journal, ultimately, even if you are fired from your first job for swearing at children. So you were there from when to when? So I was there, I mean, for the journal, I was there from 2008 until I was uh, expelled uh, in 2020, at the beginning of 2020, just as the pandemic was unfolding. Before that, I'd spent several years in China as well. So altogether, I think almost 15 years in China. So both of you were there for a good chunk, if not most of the first two terms of Xi Jinping, when I think most people saw a pretty dramatic set of changes to you know China's posture in the world, governance, and overlapping with the heart of your book, which is about the rise of China's capabilities and tensions in uh, surveilling, controlling, monitoring its population. There's a million stories you both could have reported on in China. I'm curious, how did the two of you come to have a particular interest and in, in focus on this issue of surveillance? Lisa? 
Sure. It actually, the, the way we stumbled on the topic was in a very Wall Street Journal fashion. Essentially, I was a tech reporter in Shanghai at that point for the journal, and I was looking at all these startups that were getting massive amounts of funding from venture capital firms, both in the US and China. And a ton of money was going into this niche area in tech that money hadn't gone before, and it was AI. And the, the more I probed, the more I realized it wasn't just going into every subset of AI. It was going, in particular, into one area, facial recognition. And once you dug even deeper, you realized what was happening. You know, facial recognition startups were essentially being supported by these large government contracts that had come about because the Chinese government had thought about using facial recognition in public safety use. Yeah. So for me, I think it was two things, uh, two, sort of two factors drew me to the surveillance topic. One was general and the other, you know, sort of specific. I think in the general sense, you know, it really started to become clear in sort of around 2016. And definitely into 2017, that the Communist Party under Xi Jinping was really aggressively reinserting itself into the personal lives of Chinese citizens. Right? You had state media was sort of growing increasingly moralistic. I remember in my in my neighborhood in central Beijing, you could just sort of see this explosion of security guards, also residential committee members, kind of snooping around apartment buildings and and asking people personal questions about about their lives. And it just it was such a stark reversal from the previous couple decades, the whole, basically the entire time I'd been in China, where the party had sort of been retreating from people's personal lives and letting them do whatever as long as they sort of behaved politically. Um, and so I was just fascinated to see what, you know, a return to this almost kind of Mao-like snooping and meddling would look like in the 21st century. So when Lisa told me about her work on what she discovered with these facial recognition startups, I was instantly interested and we, and we did a bunch of reporting. And then, you know, what what really I think locked it in for me was going to Xinjiang in the fall of 2017, which is just one of those experiences you, you just never forget. I mean, it was just, it was, it felt literally like stepping into a, a dystopian nightmare, right? It was just security checkpoints everywhere, facial scanning anywhere you went. It's just this sense of utter suffocation. And once I saw that, I just knew, you know, it was, it was really clear that something very significant was happening in China that deserved a lot of close attention. Yeah. And I guess to add to that, I think the aha moment for us really came when we visited the offices of SenseTime, which is China's largest um, AI surveillance company. We were invited there to basically see what applications that they had, and they had used AI in several areas. So they were very keen to show us what they were doing. The instant we got to the office, the first thing you had to do was to scan your face in order to get into the office. And this was in 2017. And 2017, these things just weren't like so common, not as common as it is in China right now. And, and going in, it was like entering this whole new world that was actually very jarring. There was this big screen, probably the size of a wall. And you know, it was linked up to several cameras that was streaming footage from the intersection just down the street from where Josh and I had walked by to get to the office. And every pedestrian vehicle and bicycle was boxed up and labeled with terms like red shirt, Chinese or Toyota and the make and model of the car. And that was when we knew we were onto something. Can I ask a, a just a comparative or a level set question? How different is China in terms of the amount of surveillance? So obviously, if you're walking around London, if you're walking around Washington, D.C., you see CCTV cameras everywhere. Facial recognition is not unique to China. So for listeners who haven't been to China or have lived in other societies where you see the omnipresence of 
surveillance capabilities. What's different or distinct about China's approach to it? Right. You know, that um, what, what's different about China's approach? I mean, I think it's interesting, right? If you look at digital state surveillance sort of begins in like the post 9-11 United States, right? With the Patriot Act and, and all of that. I mean, the US really basically invented this industry. And a lot of people also point out that, you know, London during the troubles was sort of blanketed in in surveillance cameras. And, and anyone you talk to about surveillance always sort of says, oh, well, like, you know, per capita, London has more surveillance cameras than anywhere else in the world. I'm not sure whether that's still true. I don't think it is, but it certainly was for a long time, right? So, so by no means is China alone in this. I think where China is unique and what and what China's doing that makes it unprecedented is is both in terms of scale and ambition, right? So, you know, China right now has somewhere on the order of 400 million surveillance cameras, which is just an immense number spread throughout the country. They have they have, you know, Chinese people sort of, you know, there are 900 million smartphones at least floating around China and the government has ultimately can get access to the data on those phones if it wants to. And it also has access to data from mobile payment systems in China, which log, I think, somewhere on the order of 10 times the transaction volume of MasterCard globally, right, in one year. That's just a, a huge repository of behavioral data, really unprecedented. I mean, I don't think anyone, any government has ever had access to that level of insight into their population and how, how people behave. So that's the scale. I mean, they also have, I mean, on top of scale, they, they have you know, AI tools that are capable of scanning that data just with incredible speed, right? So in the past, you know, even the NSA, they would, I mean, they would collect a ton of data, right? But the systems they had to sort of sort through that data were really slow. Sometimes you had to do it manually. You know, now Chinese police have facial recognition systems that can scan a crowd and identify someone, I guess, a database of 500,000 people in, in one second, right? Which is just an immense evolution in, in, in ability. And then the other piece of it is ambition, right? I mean, I think what China is, what the Communist Party is trying to do is not just spy on people, right? But to mold them uh, and to mold society and to sort of engineer it, basically, right? And, and the, you know, the theory, if you read sort of papers that are produced by scholars at the Central Party School in Beijing, right? The, you know, the, the, what the vision they lay out is, is one where you can use data to sort of spot all kinds of problems, all kinds of conflicts, and not just respond to them quickly, but to identify them before they even happen, to sort of predict problems. It's a little bit like the movie Minority Report, right? If, if you've seen that, where they have pre-crime, right? You know, instead of, you know, in the movie, it being based on people with mystical powers who are able to see the future, this is based on data, right? And, that, and so that's what they, you know, ultimately what they want to do is be able to sort of use that ability, the ability of data to sort of model the future as a way to engineer society and sort of self-correcting. Yeah, actually, to add on to what Josh said as well, I think what makes China really stand out from the West is the concentration of all that data in the hands of one entity, which is the party. In the West, you have a lot of data collection, but you have data collection by various entities like corporations or uh, government agencies. In China, the Chinese government has access to data from both the internet corporations, you know, various types of corporations, financial corporations, state-owned telecom companies that can give it GPS data. And of course, to add to that, the public surveillance cameras on the street that are crunching and data mining. So I think that's kind of, to me, the, the big standout point here between China and the West as well. It's not just the volume of the sensors, but who owns all that data. You had mentioned, Josh, I think it was you in comments a few minutes earlier about when you both understood you had a real story here, but marking this to sort of 2016, 2017, Josh, you said you're tipped to Xinjiang. I'm curious, is this just a matter of 
the party has always been interested in this capability and it was just a matter of having the right technological capabilities? Or was there a mindset shift in the party that occurred over the last decade to where they had a new sense of purpose or alacrity in developing these capabilities. I, I, you know, that period, 2008 to 2010, 11, felt like a kind of a liminal transition period from much more fragmented authoritarian. You even had people making the argument, I'm sure I was one of them, that China is evolving towards some more perfect liberal authoritarian state. 2016, 2017 seems to be a, just a more broader period where I think everyone had their hopes crushed that either Xi Jinping or China was going to move in even a more benign authoritarian direction. So I'm curious, was it just that's the point on the sort of slope of the curve where it became very noticeable or, or did the party have a, you know, a, a sort of change of heart on the need to really develop these capabilities? What's really fascinating when you sort of look into the Communist Party's relationship with technology is actually you sort of see the seeds of this ambition all the way back in the late 90s and early 2000s when they were just sort of starting to come to terms with the internet, right? And they were they were actually enlisting the help of, of American technology companies like Cisco and Sun Microsystems to sort of figure out how to control the internet. And even back then... There was this whole series of projects called the Golden Projects, which were sort of intended, they were sort of tech infrastructure projects intended to modernize China's economy. And one of them, Golden Shield Project, which is what led to the Great Firewall, you know, the censorship system that China uses now. When you look at the Golden Shield Project, they were talking about building big national surveillance databases even back then, or they were looking for contractors to help them build a national ID database, a national fingerprint database. And the idea was to sort of have this you know, immense visibility into the population. So the ambition has always been there. I think it's sort of come and gone. It's sort of come in and out of fashion in the party as, as the party has grown more or less interested in exercising political and social control. But I think the big turning point was probably around 2011, 2012, right before Xi Jinping came into power. And that's when you saw you had things happening online with the invention of social media that I think really caught the party off guard. And one, you know, the one moment I always come back to when I'm thinking about this is the Wenzhou crane crash, which was uh, 2011, right? So this is this high-speed rail line, this sort of symbol of Chinese technological progress that everyone around the globe was sort of marveling at. And then, and then one of them crashed, right? And it was this, it was this terrible accident and it instantly became a metaphor for China's economy sort of running out of control. And there was, you know, a lot of public anger around it because, you know, there was like clearly attempts by the local officials to cover it up. Sometimes literally they were actually trying to bury one of the train cars at one point. And the level of anger online at the party was just immense. Yep. And, you know, if you talk to government advisors at the time, they said that that was one of those moments that where the party was like, go from playing defense on technology to playing offense. Yep. Right. And so that's when they started to talk about things like the social credit system, like expanding the social credit system to sort of be more comprehensive. It's also when they started talking more about exploring surveillance technology. And just coincidentally, you know, the 2010s is when you started having these really massive advances in AI with machine learning techniques that made it possible for things like facial recognition to sort of really work at a level that they hadn't before. So suddenly the party had the tools to start inserting itself into the lives of, of Chinese people more. Prior to that, to Wen Zhou, which I remember as well as just being one of these moments where I think if your bias was towards some sort of popular uprising, the months following that with the explosion of outrage would have seemed to confirm it. So just to get a sense of where the trajectory is moving in the in the years leading up to Wenzhou, any idea of how 
the party was thinking about technology? Was it a much more open discussion about the possibilities and prospects? And I'm curious too, you know, you both have done a lot of reporting on the private sector in China, how it uses technology. Any sense of how private sector companies were thinking about technology then that may be surprising? Was it much more about sort of consumer application? Just any sense there? I'm just trying to set a, a demarcation between, you know, pre and post shift. You know, I think, you know, prior to 2011, I think in the sort of mid to late 2000s, you know, the focus in China technologically was, I mean, it was just, it was a fairly wide open environment, right? And it was, it was experimental. I think the Communist Party really at the, at that time wanted to prove that China could be innovative. If you recall, I mean, back then it was, you know, everyone was saying, yeah, China, you know, China's growing, you know, its economy is double digit growth every year, but can it really innovate, right? Can a communist kind of state controlled economy really be creative in the way that it needs to be to be a global power, right? That was the, that was the discourse at the time. And so I think the, you know, the government was motivated to sort of not get involved. It was clear, especially in the late 2000s, that China's internet companies were actually pretty dynamic, right? You had these leaders, you had people like Jack Ma, the, the founder of Alibaba, and Pony Ma, the founder of Tencent. Uh, you know, they had a lot of energy and they had uh, you know, a lot of money flowing in and they were doing interesting things and, 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 and creating new products. And so I think the party was sort of giving them a fairly wide latitude. And that includes Weibo, right? Which was the um, sort of Twitter, Facebook equivalent, which, in, you know, which in, when it came out in 2009 was really kind of mind blowing to people, right? I mean, it was in some way people thought it was better than Facebook and Twitter. And it was so dynamic. There was so much conversation on it. And, and it, was really, it was really quite exciting and, and fairly open. So to add to that, you know, in, in 2010, I think we, already saw the Chinese Communist Party's ambitions to control the internet, but perhaps it wasn't as obvious back then because a lot of the discourse was centered around how the Chinese government wanted to create a walled garden for its Chinese internet companies. Because I remember very clearly in 2010 when I first moved to China, the first thing I wanted to do was to post on Facebook. And I found out that Facebook was just blocked. And it wasn't, you know, it was shortly after that Google was also inaccessible. So I think you definitely saw in the run-up to even Xi Jinping coming into power, the Chinese had the intention of dominating their internet discourse and their internet ecosystem. But back then, there was so much talk about how China was just creating an uneven playing field for its own internet companies, which at that point were really coming of age. Tencent had QQ, and then Alibaba was really making its name as an e-commerce platform. Back then, Taobao was super popular. I started being very popular among college students and then really quickly in 2011, 2012, like the mass population just all latched on because it just made buying things so much cheaper and more frictionless. And I guess in the years after that, what we definitely did see was this big realization on the part of the Communist Party that the internet actually wasn't completely their enemy, but it could be a friend. Mm -hmm. So in 2015, you saw Li Keqiang make this big push towards Internet Plus. I'm not sure if that rings a bell, but it was this big plan about how the internet was going to digitize Chinese economy, it was going to make its factories more efficient, raise worker productivity, and essentially be the savior of the slowing economic growth that China was starting to feel at that point. So I, I would almost say like in, in the earlier years, the internet was seen as a beneficial thing for the Chinese economy, but just not Western company involvement. One of the things that's come up in the discussion so far is we're talking about the party on the one hand with aspirations and evolving aspirations to control and surveil, but you keep mentioning private sector companies, SenseTime, Alibaba, Tencent. Can you talk a bit about what the ecosystem of state and private actors looks like here? 
Lisa, you had mentioned earlier one of the distinguishing factors between surveillance capabilities or surveillance states elsewhere is access, unified access to the data, right? So in the United States, there's a lot of CCTV cameras, but the US government has to go through a legal process oftentimes to get access to the data. There's not a central repository or there's not an open conduit for them to, to reach down. What does it look like in China in terms of the relationship between the private sector and the party? Is a company like SenseTime essentially just an appendage of the party state? Does it have its own commercial imperatives that conflict or at least are not totally harmonious with the party? And then is there any legal barriers in place that have any meaning or purchase that inhibit the party state's ability to say, you know what, I'd like access to all of Josh's browsing habits? So I would describe the relationship between private companies and the government in China when it comes to the surveillance state as strongly dependent on public-private partnerships. So you definitely saw uh, in the early days of the rollout of these smart cities when networks of cameras were being, when networks of cameras started to appear in cities, you definitely saw a strong involvement by tech companies such as China Telecom, SenseTime, Hikvision, Dahua, Itu, the usual suspects. And I would call it a mutually reinforcing relationship because for a company like SenseTime, eTool, or MegV, at the point of time when, you know, 2016, 2017, when the surveillance state was just ramping up, they were producing software that really was so new and so novel that it was hard to find commercial customers for that software. So the Chinese government, together with, with its very generous public security contracts, gave these companies kind of the lifeblood to keep reinvesting, you know, to hire new talent, to reinvest in their R&D. So that was one aspect of the relationship that was extremely beneficial. I mean, the other aspect is just access to data. A sense time or, you know, even a Baidu at that point, because Baidu also had AI facial recognition capability. I remember Josh and I speaking to an executive at Baidu who basically handles the AI division at the tech company. And he said, the access to the police databases of all these faces help them to train the AI algorithm and make it as accurate as the way it is right now. And you know, now in, in recent years and, and even like last year, when you look at some of the top industry competitions for facial recognitions globally, like the NIST index, for example, the top five, typically among the top 10 companies, you would see at least five or six Chinese companies dominating the list of the best facial recognition algorithms. And all that is just thanks to them partnering with Chinese governments and having access to all that data to train the algorithm. So I wanted to next ask about the geographic variegation of uh, surveillance capabilities, approach, penetration, I'm going to, I want to ask about Xinjiang in a minute, which seems to occupy one extreme. But for a Chinese citizen living in a major metropolitan area on the coast, Hangzhou, Shanghai, what might it look like for, for that citizen to be a part of the ecosystem of surveillance that the party has implemented? So Hangzhou really stood out to us, and we actually profiled Hangzhou in our book as well. The reason being, because even though you had very wealthy cities like Shanghai and Shenzhen experimenting with smart cities and various sorts of digital technology, Hangzhou was basically home to China's and actually now the world's largest CCTV maker, which is Hikvision. And it's also home to the world's second largest CCTV maker, which is Dahua. <laughs> and to add on to that, 
Alibaba has its headquarters in the city, and so does N Financial, its fintech arm. So that just makes Hangzhou very, very embracing of digital technology. And generally, the people there are very tech savvy. So a typical day in Hangzhou when I was reporting there in 2019 would be at that point, you could take the subways and pay for a subway ticket with your face. You could walk into a convenience store and buy a water if you got thirsty or a coffee with your face. There was so much you could do with your face. And essentially, when you talk to residents in Hangzhou, no one carries money. They have a wallet, but it's buried at the, right at the bottom of the backpack because nobody takes it out. The one thing they always carry is an extra battery charging pack because you don't want the mobile phone to run out because your mobile phone is your credit card. It's your subway card. It's your identity card. You know, and it's your way of contacting your friends. It's even the way you, you know, in Hangzhou, you scan a QR code on the table and you order your food. That is how high tech Hangzhou is. And these are the same surveillance systems uh, that you would see in Xinjiang as well. And that's just from a consumer perspective. From a city perspective, we know that Alibaba has tied up with the local government to create what they call a city brain. Essentially, it's a smart AI system that utilizes a network of CCTV cameras and data from Alibaba's own GPS mapping application. And it's using that to optimize traffic on Hangzhou streets. Think of it this way. Hangzhou is one of these Chinese cities where the road infrastructure network never ever caught up with its vehicle and human population growth. In the year 2000, Hangzhou had about 3.6 million people. In 2020, it had almost close to 11 million. And it still has the same road networks. So the jams there are horrible. What Alibaba and the city government tied up to do was to use these sensors on the street to optimize traffic and make sure that traffic lights were green when traffic was heavier. And if there was a road accident on the street, the AI would pick it up very quickly and send a warning to traffic police so that traffic police could go and clear up the accident as soon as they could. And then traffic would flow as per normal again. In Hangzhou, I think what, what also really stood out to me when I was doing reporting there was people really liked the idea of surveillance cameras keeping public safety and law and order on the streets. In Hangzhou, if the police was looking for a potential criminal suspect or a getaway car, the networks of CCTV cameras would be able to trace where they went or where they came from in a matter of minutes, if not a matter of seconds. So this was very, very attractive to the people that I spoke to in Hangzhou. I want to circle back around to just something you touched on, which is how most citizens interpret some of the capabilities that the party and the private sector have, which I think we frame as surveillance capabilities. But as you're expressing, it's a much more complex relationship between technology and the citizen. Josh, can I go to an extreme end of this, which is which is Xinjiang? And I, I, if I can ask first, I think most people who read about Xinjiang have never been there, and certainly not, you know, recently. Can you give a bit of a tactile sense for what does it feel and look like to be walking around a city in Xinjiang, and how does the surveillance state present itself? So Xinjiang is an immense region in, in the sort of far northwest part of, of China. I think it's twice the size of Texas. It's a rugged place, mountains, deserts, right on the doorstep of Central Asia. And it actually feels very Central Asian. It almost doesn't really feel like China at all in certain parts, you know, especially in, in, the, in the southern parts where you have large populations of Turkic Muslims, mostly Uyghurs. You go to those towns, you don't really hear Chinese. You don't really see even Chinese food, right? I mean, you feel more like you're in Istanbul than in Beijing. So it, it's always been a region that's, that's been a bit of, apart from China. 
culturally, sort of religiously in, in various other ways. And starting in 2017, the, the Communist Party really ramped up this sort of forced assimilation campaign, right? Targeting the Uyghurs. And a huge part of that was this extensive surveillance system, which involved thousands of cameras, microphones, and other, other sorts of surveillance sensors attached to a centralized platform called the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, which is actually based on a, a military model. Uh, it, was, it was developed originally for sort of joint operations for the military and counterinsurgency type operations. So when I first went to Xinjiang for this reporting in 2017, it looked like a counterinsurgency operation. A colleague and I drove in from a neighboring region. As soon as you crossed the border, there were SWAT-style soldiers with assault rifles manning these checkpoints, these security, security checkpoints, and you would sort of have to go through and scan your face, maybe scan your irises. And then as you drove into the region, those security checkpoints every 30 minutes right? And then if you drove into town, towns are just blanketed in surveillance cameras, razor wire everywhere. Any public place you went into, whether it was a market or a hotel or a residential compound, you had to go through another security checkpoint that would often scan your face to match it against your identity document. And and there was a division too. So you know, for regular Han Chinese, they wanted to go into a market, they were just like waved through basically, right? But then, you know, anyone who looked like a minority would have to go through the more sort of intensive scanning operation. And as you, you know, as you would walk down the street, there would be police sort of sat up, they'd have these tables sitting on the sidewalk and they would kind of randomly wave people over and scan their cell phones. They had devices that they could plug into a phone and use that to sort of scan the phones for digital contraband, you know, whether it's photos of Turkic movie stars or digital Qurans or even just apps like WhatsApp that are encrypted that the authorities thought could be used to sort of contact people outside of China. So it really, it really was pervasive and, and inescapable. And I just, I remember like physically having this feeling of like, my heart beating in my chest, like anytime I would roll up to one of these security points, right? Because you just never knew what was going to happen. And I could only imagine what that must have felt like for, for Uyghurs who lived there. What is the flow of approaches to technological governance and surveillance across the country? People will say that certain city has been Xinjianged insofar as it looks like the approach in, in Xinjiang is being spread to other cities. Is that the right way to think about this? Is it a one-way street from Xinjiang to the rest of China? Or is the conversation on digital governance and surveillance more fluid and circulating more widely around the country? Right. Well, I do think you do definitely see methods and systems that were first implemented in Xinjiang spreading elsewhere in China. And you especially see this now with the pandemic, right? It was really, that was one of the most stark experiences for me when, when COVID first started spreading in China in early 2020. My own residential compound was closed off. So you only had one entrance, right? And they started, they, they did that generally across the country, right? And which, and the, the idea was that it just made it much easier to sort of track who was coming and going. And you could, you know, you could check their IDs and make sure they were actual residents and that sort of thing. And that is exactly what had been happening in Xinjiang three years earlier. And, uh, you know, and just, just the really intensive interrogation, technological interrogation of people and, and their movements, right? And their exposure, you know, in, in the case of COVID, it's exposure to an actual virus. And in Xinjiang, the party's concern was exposure to this it, you know, ideological virus, right? Of, of sort of, of religious extremism. So it, it, you definitely have seen a, a flow of, of methods and systems from Xinjiang to other parts of China. You know, Xinjiang now is, you know, seems to be kind of entering potentially a new phase. They have a new party, party secretary, uh, Chen Chuanguo, who presided over the crackdown for the past few years has been replaced. 
you had a great discussion with Darren Byler about this earlier, right? I mean, it's a, you know it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen there, but it, you know the reports from people who've been to Xinjiang more recently are that it is sort of loosening up a little bit, right? There's less surveillance. Life seems to kind of at least be recovering a semblance of normality. Um, and how much that actually, you know, how much, how normal it actually feels. Yeah, le- like. less surveillance from a threshold. Exactly. I mean, it's hard. To, it was hard for there to be more surveillance, right? So could I could kind of only go in one direction. So, you know, in terms of whether, you know, ideas about how to manage cities from Hangzhou are now being implemented in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, I mean, I think there probably is some of that going back and forth. But I think generally, at least in terms of the flow of ideas, I think the Communist Party is very heavily interested in control, right? And Xinjiang is where these technologies have been used in that sense the most effectively. So I think that those patterns, you definitely see them being repeated in other parts of the country where the Communist Party feels like it needs to to clamp down. We just have a few minutes left, and I, I wanted to see if I could wrap two questions together, which is how the party and the government have ramped up or, or adapted or responded or evolved um, after the outbreak of COVID-19 and any shifting public attitudes towards some of this, this heavy-handed approach to surveillance. We've seen some news stories come out of really frustration and anger at the amount of control that the party is leveraging, not just because of its zero COVID approach, but the way in which it's exploiting or abusing your public health code, for example, to enforce your ability to take out money at a local bank, you know, so really abusing these capabilities. So um, we just have a few minutes, but I'm curious, any thoughts on how public attitudes may be going from a more passive acceptance of this to maybe something different now that we've seen a sort of a step change across the country, not just in Xinjiang, but across the country to using these uh, surveillance technologies? I would say that in the early days of COVID, it was our view that the Communist Party actually because of its success in containing the virus, actually found this model of data governance very tenable and quite successful. Recalling early 2020, when the outbreak first broke out in Wuhan, what the Chinese government did at that point was to track everyone who left Wuhan using their GPS signals on their mobile phone, track where they eventually landed up, and then got the resident committee of that neighborhood to ask this person to quarantine. And that was actually very effective in keeping a virus under control. We know now that contact tracing can be very useful in the early stages of the transmission chain, but perhaps not when the virus has kind of run amok and gone out of control. So the first year of the coronavirus outbreak really kind of reinforced China's belief that state surveillance Uh, and digital safe surveillance was ultimately a good thing for its own citizens. And we saw that view kind of play out as well within the Chinese population. People who were initially quite upset at having to stay in their houses or being tracked or having to, you know, show a QR code wherever they went. People who initially were unhappy about it, I spoke to them at the start of the year and at the end of the year. And they told me at the end of the year, you know, Perhaps what China's doing isn't so bad after all. And ultimately, the coronavirus deaths in China now stand at like one per 100,000 people, whereas in the US, the same number is 315 deaths per 100,000 people. So we definitely saw towards the end of 2020, a shift in attitudes that people actually became more accepting of state surveillance and started to see the very attractive side of it. That would have been great for the party if COVID, if the Omicron variant did not hit. Mm. And it is really this year that you're starting to see the fissures kind of form. People are starting to get very upset 
at being told by like a drone robot dog to put the mask <laughs> on or like, you know, drones flown by police telling them, you know, to stay in your homes and obey the party and do what you need for society. I think this year we really saw the Communist Party kind of test the envelope. The only thing I would add on to that is I, I think, you know, yeah, it's been fascinating to see people in some cities kind of reach their limit with, with state surveillance and sort of reconsider how they feel about it. But what I also think has been interesting in places like Shanghai, where we had obviously had that that really sort of dramatic and draconian lockdown where you had people complaining that they couldn't get food and sort of becoming really desperate is one takeaway from that is also that the Communist Party now has tools to maintain control even in the face of immense public outrage. What was really striking to me is that the government didn't really waver at all in Shanghai and in other places where they've locked things down. I think that's partly because they have the confidence that these tools that they've developed Yes, they can make people's lives more convenient and safer and easier and good in good conditions. But when things are bad, they also allow the party to really clamp down and maintain control. And I think that that was always the intention. We've really just scratched the surface of the book, but I guess that's the intention when you're recording a podcast that you hope gets people to go out and buy the book. So can't recommend Surveillance State more highly, both because I think it's especially important that it was written by two reporters with lots of on-the-ground experiences. As we've just heard, I think the ability to be walking around Hangzhou and Xinjiang and be going into the offices of Chinese technology companies gives you a tactile, granular sense for what the actual lived, implemented surveillance state looks like rather than just sort of reading primary source documents. I think it's especially apposite and somewhat terrifying that this book comes out just on the eve of Xi Jinping taking a third term because the ratchet seems to only have one direction. And the the story, which I think you talk about in the book and we just ended on here, which is really the critical story is the shifting public attitudes towards some of these capabilities. And and Lisa, as you were saying, you know, this year seems to be a step shift in how citizens are willing to accept all of these capabilities. And it's, I wonder if this, like 2011, is another inflection point, but for maybe reasons the party wishes weren't occurring. Josh and Lisa, really great book. The book, again, is Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, just out from St. Martin's Press. Thank you for, for your time today and for writing such a fantastic book. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 